Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm going down what you doing down here, you surely man. <laughs> You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. I'm with David Kennedy and Kieran Murphy here. Hello there, all. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. These three voices are the only ones you'll hear on the show today that aren't deeply ensconced in the incredible world of football in the north- northeast of England. Because our guests today are Michael Walker, who you'll know if you're a regular reader of the Irish Times Sports page, is a Northern Irishman based in Newcastle, based in that neck of the woods anyway, and has written a book up there, The Northeast Football Boom and Bust, and a true man of Sunderland and the world, Jonathan Wilson. What are we talking to him about, Ken? Uh, We're talking to him about what happens when a football club's soul dies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Who's who's died? Uh, Well, Manchester United, uh, according to Eric Harrison. Their former, the, the you know who he is. Of course. Youth team manager back in the day. Yeah, brought through the Fergie fledglings. And uh, now he's in a not at all uh, over the top description of the Danny Will exhale. He says that he thinks they've, the soul of the club is dying. <laughs> but he's not he's the not only, the only, yeah, he he's not the only one to express either. these opinions. Um, uh, there's been Gary Neville today. There's well, let's been... get straight into all that in Kennedy's report on sport. Well, let's actually start with um, Newcastle first, Dom, because there's a report today uh, in the Telegraph that um, Mike Ashley, an incredibly unpopular Premier League owner, is uh, about to sell up at Newcastle. Well, is, is trying to sell up. In, in fairness, I mean, I say this is a news report, but it's not really news because... We, there has been a sort of general awareness for some time that Mike Ashley will sell you Newcastle United if you come up with the money that he thinks it's worth, which, you know, um, is a reasonable uh, chunk of cash, according to the Telegraph, around £230 million. The reason for this is that Ashley has seen a better, uh, you know, what he thinks is a, b- a better deal mm-hmm. uh, in the form of Glasgow Rangers. Right. Rangers, obviously, fell in hard times. Uh, some time ago, um, and up there. F- even further up there, 
and things things went badly off the rails there. Meaning uh, that Rangers, you know, effectively, I mean, you've got like Chris Boyd, Rangers striker, coming out and saying things like, "I'd play for free for Rangers." You know, that's it's looking as though he may soon be Chris, tested on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no point in offering up any hostages to fortune. I would have thought, Chris. Yeah. Uh, so all that means that um, Rangers is available at a knockdown price, certainly a lot less than uh, Newcastle United, uh, and with a much lower cost base too. Admittedly, a lower revenue potential, given that Newcastle are going to make um, vastly more from television than Rangers can ever hope to. Although you never know. You never know what might happen in the future. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that if Mike Ashley's thinking of taking over Rangers, he's not only thinking in terms of, well, what happens if this club gets into the Champions League? But also, what happens if this club does an RBS on it and uh, somehow manages to detach itself from Scotland and attach itself to uh, the English League? Yeah. I mean, there was always this thing about, well, you'll have to start way down the football pyramid. We couldn't parachute you right into the top level. But Rangers have got used to that now. You know, the, in a way, the, the journey itself is enough to fill the heart of the club. You know, the, the progress up the divisions. Mm. Uh, and maybe, you know, to the, to the promised land of the Premier League and the TV money that it would bring. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with that, not least if Scotland was to vote next week to become an entirely separate country. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you've got Welsh clubs in the Premier League, why not? Why not Scottish clubs? Ashley, I'm sure, is thinking about this. Anyway, the point is, he can't own both. Um, because- These are the kind of things that have to be taken into account, though, Ken, when it comes to... Scottish independence. I mean, I saw a guy there. There was a vine going around of a Scottish gentleman who I think was planning to vote yes, but his concern, his only concern with that was that he doesn't want to lose match of the day. He said, as long as I can, I'm going for yes, I'm very much of a mind to vote for independence, but just you definitely do set a match of the day, right? He, Eager to seek clarification of that key, key policy point. I wonder what people think is going to happen. I mean, you know... <laughs> They're aware they'll be able to buy the same products and services as as before. Not that's not really going to change. You know, you can still. It's not going to become North Korea. Like there is a lot of talk. No. What happens with the BBC though? Well, we've been watching Match of the Day for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure they can sort down something here. Out. Yeah. Not paying for it. We've been. Uh, I guess the question is how much the British government will want to punish Scotland if they do become independent. Yeah, you're, uh, not, you're not getting Match of the Day, guys. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if punishment really is, is a dynamic that that's that's going to come into it. Um, I'm sorry, we, we're getting sidetracked. We yeah, could, we could literally sit here talking about that, much, you know, extremely interesting subject all day. But for the time being, uh, the point is that if Ashley owned Rangers and Newcastle, they could theoretically meet in Europe. You're not allowed to own the same individual isn't allowed to own two clubs that could do that. So, uh, in order for him to increase his stake there, still available at a low, low price, but who knows for how much longer. Um, he may have to uh, approach this getting rid of Newcastle w- with added urgency. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a strange one in a, in a way because Newcastle haven't done too badly under Ashley. Um, you know, they, they now make profit, which was not something that they used to do. Mind you, it's not necessarily a good thing when a club makes too much profit. Mm. I mean, um, he has invested a lot of his own money, although he's obviously looking for that back as part of the price that somebody else is going to pay him for the club. It's not a question of just 
waving goodbye to that money. But, you know, he's, it's, it's thanks to the fact that he's put his own money in that they don't have, they aren't saddled with very expensive debts now. Yeah. You know, for instance. The problem is just this crushing lack of ambition. The fact that they had a money lender on, the, on their shirt, you know, Wonga. The fact that they renamed the stadium after Mike Ashley's company. The fact that anybody remotely half-decent they know is going to be sold. Which, in fairness, is not a new thing entirely with Newcastle United and their players. But it is still... It doesn't stop it being any less demoralizing when it keeps happening, you know. Um, so, yeah, we'll 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 wait and see how that goes. And we're yeah. going to talk, as, as I mentioned, to, to Michael Walker um, a bit more about his book, which is dealing in more depth with football in more that area. Gary Neville gigs, but Man United. So Gary Neville, I mean, in what is for him strong criticism of uh, Manchester United. Uh, it's not the way I would expect them to go about their business. I always expected it to be a lot more controlled. Uh, I thought the Danny Welbeck sale was a strange one. I can't work it out. After all the prices I've seen paid this summer, and I've been working with them last week, I'm thinking, how is it only 16 million? There's been right-backs and left-backs galore who've been bought for 15, 14, 13 million this summer. How have they got him for 16 million? I can't work it out to this day. It really does feel strange that it's the centre-forward. And actually, it's helped out a competitor, someone who'll be vying for those third and fourth places with United this season. I'm struggling to understand the logic behind the deal in two or three ways, really. Whatever about the, um, the, the price, I don't think the price is really the issue here. I think the second thing he talks about there is, is the issue. Why sell him to Arsenal? Yeah. I mean, of all the teams. Well, maybe they were the only ones in for it. Well, they weren't. I mean, Sunderland were in for him too. I mean, maybe Welbeck obviously would have rather joined Arsenal. He gets to play in the Champions League and it's a, it's a bigger club and more chance of winning things with Arsenal. The player didn't always get to decide that kind of thing in the past. I mean, if Alex Ferguson had still been the manager at Manchester United, I can't imagine him selling Danny Welbeck to Arsenal. Yeah, we all remember the Gabriel Lainza one from years ago. Yeah. Lainza said, sorry, uh, boss, I'm joining Liverpool. That's actually not going to happen. Mm. No, no, but it is. I'm allowed to go. I mean, they're, they're going to buy me. No. No, no, no. No, you're not allowed to go. You've got that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I imagine Ferguson selling him somewhere for half the money. To avoid him going there, to bury him, you know, to say, okay, sorry things didn't work out, Danny. Now I'm going to bury you, or try to bury your career, because I the last thing that I want. Well, there's a lot of things I don't want, but one of the things I really don't want is you scoring the goals that keeps this club out of the Champions League for a second season in a row. And I mean, so they've sold to Arsenal, who are arguably their most direct competitor mm. right now, you know? The team that always gets into the Champions League. Arsenal will be counting on that again. Um, Man United have to get back in there. You know, there's Liverpool too, but everybody has to wait and see how that how that takes shape. You know, um, but they have sold it to a club they know will definitely be competing there. And it's just, it seems, it's an odd one. Now, the, the other thing that's, the other criticism that people have been making is a more emotional one. I mean, we're talking so much about Welbeck because I think, you know, he's, he's probably going to make his debut this, uh, this weekend. He played quite well for England on... Uh, well, he scored two goals for England would be a better way of putting it on Monday night. Um, now, he's saying, uh, or rather people are, are also making the point about, well, hang on, this is, this is against the ethos of, of the club. We're a club which, which uh, has always tried to... You know, that's certainly what Ferguson was used to say. What, it's one of the things Manchester United... One of their brand values let's say is uh, 
you, you promote their the own young, young players. Yeah. yeah, promote the young ones. And Ryan Giggs, who of course is now a member of management, um, is is saying this club will never change. The history of the club is to play exciting football, to give youngsters a chance, and to keep to the traditions of the club. Okay, Danny has left, which is disappointing. You never want to see a homegrown player leave. But this is a manager who gave Sador his chance. Clavert, Xavi, Iniesta, Thomas Muller their chances. He got a track record of giving young players their chance. Tyler Blackett has played every game this season. Underneath Rooney and Van Persie, we have Yanis and James Wilson. It will always happen. Players leave, but we've got to make sure young players come through because the United fans demand it. Um, so, that's gig. I mean, Giggs would say that. He's now, uh, you know, I don't want to say a, a soulless corporate drone, but, you know, he's, he, you know, he knows what side his bread is buttered on. And so he's kind of contradicting what all these others are saying. I, I think that there's Nicky Butt, though, is also a coach. He, and he makes this point, which I think is an interesting, just says something. He's a reserve team manager. He says, Man United was one of the last ones standing that still had the connection between the youth and first team. We are still trying to do that. Liverpool are doing that really well at the moment, to be fair. We've always believed in getting players through. Liverpool are doing that really well at the moment. Mm. Oh, what's what's that based on? I mean, Liverpool have Raheem Sterling. Mm. That's it. There's Flanagan, but they just signed two Spanish fullbacks. Let's see how much we see of Flanagan this season. You know, I mean, they've, they've signed Moreno. But you is imagine that what he's going to start. Is it, can you consider it a success now for an English academy system? To produce just one, one player, yeah, one, one really good player. Yeah, I think rather that's... than this, nobody's. It's never going to happen again. I don't even want to. I'm not going to say the phrase, Ken. But the players who emerged from that 1992 youth yeah. team and ultimately made their debuts a couple of years later, that's just, we know that's not going to happen again. So maybe it is just one. Yeah, what happened to Barcelona. Well, exactly. That's the, I mean, Barcelona are the exception here. Barcelona are the sort of outlier. I mean, you can look at Bayern Munich and think that okay, they've got quite a few um, players who all who, from the brushy Dortmund. Uh, yeah, they do have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these these clubs are hoovering up it, yeah. talent from across um, the two great, the two currently great football nations in Europe. You know, Spain just happens to produce better players than England at the moment. So does Germany. That's a fact. And then a club like Barcelona is bringing in talent from all over. You know, I mean, there, there have always been complaints that you know United were always complaining about that. Oh, we are only allowed to bring players from a certain catchment area. It's really restrictive, and they've kind of changed some of that. Uh, since. So, I mean, that could potentially happen. But I just think it's interesting that Nicky Butt would say Liverpool are doing that really well at the moment. When, when you actually, and, and there is definitely that sort of sense around Liverpool. But when you look at it, really the only player who's come through their own system is Raheem Sterling. And even he came there when he was 15. You know, he's from Kingston via Wembley. He's not like, it's not like, um, you know, Michael Owen or Robbie Fowler or Stephen Gerrard or a player like this, you know, who's been there since they were kids, you know, Sterling was bought for 600 grand, rising to 5 million at the age of 15. You know, he's kind of a prodigy mm. who, who they kind of brought in. It was, it was kind of like, yeah, we think this guy's going to make it, you know. Liam Brady, remember Liam Brady was talking to Tony Liam a little while ago. He said he, he had just signed him and decided, no, you can't always tell. You know, you spend, sometimes spend money on a player and, he, and it doesn't turn out. Um, but just to have one player, it seems. I mean, Liverpool do also have uh, have a lot of players in the England team. You know, Sturridge and Henderson, younger <clears throat> English players. But they're not guys who have come through their system. You know, they've they've signed those yep. guys. Um, but yeah, just one, um, one would do it for Manchester United. One would vindicate the whole thing. Brendan Rodgers, you you touched on him there, but yeah, a bit of Rodgers news today. Um, well, Rodgers is angry. He's angry with Roy Hodgson. Not the most popular man 
in Liverpool, of course, Hodgson. Uh, but he says uh, he's angry because, once again, Daniel Sturridge has been returned broken from England duty. This afternoon, remember, he, played, he got injured playing against Ireland, actually. A serious injury um, in that game. It tore ankle ligaments. This time, it's not a serious injury, but it's a tie strain. It's a kind of an annoying one for Rodgers, at least because... Well, at least with the ankle ligament thing, that was a tackle by, I can't remember, was it Glenn Whelan? I'm, I'm not quite sure. That kind of thing happens. It's unfortunate, but what can you do? This is an injury in training, a muscle injury in training. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Right. Not if you're doing it right. Not if you're doing it right. And that's the point that um, that's the point that Rogers is making, because he, Sturridge is now possibly going to miss, he's going to miss the, the next game, definitely. He may miss Villa, West Ham, Everton, uh, their first Champions League game and a, and a Capital One Cup game, all because England are in training, right? Uh, Roger says, the only disappointment for us is Daniel Sturridge coming back injured. We're disappointed. We feel it's an injury which could have been prevented. He's worked so hard over preseason. He looked very fit and strong in our last game against Tottenham. Clubs work differently to international teams. It's more the recovery strategy. When we look at our players here, we look at them individually in terms of what their needs are. Fast players have a second day of recovery while other players can work on that day. When you're that type of quick player like Sturridge, Raheem Sterling, and boys like Danny Welbeck, you need to recover them. So apparently, uh, Roy Hodgson's primitive training methods have... Well, I, there's, that's the dichotomy that exists between international club football, though. I don't know if Hodgson would feel that he would have the luxury of... Of course, yeah, well, yeah, of course all players, I mean, ideally every single player would be treated and trained in, a, in a, quite a specific way, but I wouldn't say it's very easy to do that while trying to harmonise a group when you've only got a few days to get it. That's true, but at the same time, there's no use, the injured player is absolutely no use. <laughs> so if the player gets injured, there's, there's no point. It's more a question of, I mean, you use the word luxury, do I have the luxury of doing this? But what if it's not luxury? What if it's a basic requirement? It's like, you're going to break the guy if, he's, if, he, if you train him too much, therefore you can't do it. I mean, and, and, you, and you, you then have to accommodate yourself to that as opposed to saying, well, I need him in training. I have to do the training with him. And then he gets injured. You know, well, well now, it's, now you've, it's been a waste of everyone's time. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's obviously, maybe it's something which in, in a sense, it's, it's something which would count against Sturridge in the eyes of some coaches. Well, I can't rely on this guy. And those coaches would end up, I think, with slower, te- slower teams than teams which are prepared to make allowances for the fact that sometimes if you've got an explosive fast switch player, he's not going to train all the time. I do remember in the heat of the pre-tournament optimism for England, they the players were talking in almost reverential tones about the scientific training that they were doing. Which is <laughs> wearing three wearing extra jumpers. jumpers. Wearing extra layers, yeah. but I think then examining the, 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 the sweat and, and, and Oh, that's right. They're, and by that, the they're having thing. all their bodily fluids yeah. analyzed. But yeah, largely the re- the way of producing this bet was wearing a lot of layers, which sounded to me a lot like what Ireland were doing in 1994. Yeah, and baseball caps as they walked out of the field, oh, yeah, drinking like 16 bottles of water, like like what Alan Kelly was talking about doing <laughs> in Orlando, and then eating 48 hard boiled eggs. <laughs> yeah, third party funds. Yeah, let's talk about third party funds. Very briefly. Basically, the president of Sporting Lisbon is attacking these. Yeah, there was this whole thing that came up with Rojo's transfer to Manchester United where they were paying 16 million euros. And then this third party fund, which had helped Sporting Lisbon buy him in the first place, says, Yeah, we'll have 12 million of that, please. Mm-hmm. And Sporting said, No, you know what? We're not going to pay you. We're going to give you the money that you originally. We're going to pay you for your what your initial interest in this player cost. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to pay you because 
the contract that the previous management, and this is where it's lucky that Sporting have, have had a change of uh, ownership, change of regime there. The contract they signed with you is actually illegal. Um, they signed a contract which enabled you to dictate to us things like when we're going to sell the player and so on. So this this contract doesn't have a leg to stand on. Never stand up in court. So so literally sue us for the money because we're not going to give it to you. But in the meantime, um, the president of Sporting Lisbon has now has gone to the Soccer X conference, which is going on in Manchester at the moment. Bruno Carvalho essentially saying saying that these people are gangsters, not Doyen in particular. He doesn't go that far, but he's making the point that third party. Uh, funds such as them. The idea is, you know, they help clubs to sign players they wouldn't otherwise afford in return then for a share on the speculative profit that's made on those players. You know, sign Rocker for 4 million, sell him for 16, profit, right? Um, and obviously they're not really involved in the game in any other way other than taking money out of transfers. You know, it's not a good, it's not really a good way for the game to go. But he says that they're a menace. Um, they undermine clubs' finances, they undermine the integrity of the game, uh, and is suggesting that a lot of them are connected with gamblers and match fixers, um, which I suppose is a full house of the bad things uh, that UEFA don't want to see in football. Um, we'll see if there's any more on that That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. Brian, thanks many for talking to us. Thank you, thanks for having me. Excited to be on the new show. I think it was a good soundbite in which I got now. Mm. I, I'm still not you convinced how... You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, <laughs> and I used to explain to her to try to get out of the trouble, and she looked at me and said, hmm, and I knew a butt whooping was coming at the house. <laughs> it's a kip. Look at it's it's like a lot of the monuments around around Ireland, GA monuments. It's a dump. You know, I just had occasion to uh, rewatch some of the '94 win over Italy, the one nothing win, the legendary win at the Meadowlands, and the way you guys took care of Baggio with McGrath, you know, just laying his body out all over the place. Oh my God, was it a battle? And a lot of our boys used to love the fact that we were going up there because it just it was just a hammer match. The referee let absolutely everything go. And like, you loved as, it as well, Oshin, yeah. I absolutely hated it. I was about ten and a half stone at the time. <laughs> uh, I was basically just there to take free kicks because of the referee that we had. There was no free kicks. <laughs> I wrote a book called Arrivals decades and decades ago. Vincent grew up in Brooklyn, and he was very much into baseball, and he was a Dodger fan. So he read that chapter, because he wrote the book, and he calls me up and he says, Jerry, I had to call you. You have written a great book. I said, Vincent, it's not a great book. It's a good book. He says, Jerry, it's a great book. I'm saying, no, it's a good book. Now, he's defending my book, and I'm attacking it, right? Yeah. My idea is you got to win an argument with this guy. So he says to me, don't try to tell me it's a great, not a great book. I read it. I said, don't try to tell me it's not a good book. I wrote it. <laughs> Are we joined by Michael Walker to talk about his new book up there, The Northeast Football Boom and Bust. Michael, good to talk to you. This is a book about a region that, I don't know, could you say that it's given more to English football than any other and maybe gotten less in return? Um. Yeah, you probably could argue that, yeah, yeah. Um, It's certainly in terms of, you know, if if we call the modern world after 1945, then it hasn't, it hasn't won enough, you know, it really hasn't. And it hasn't, it hasn't justified the amount of interest in it. You know, the clubs have not justified the amount of interest in it. And, you know, there is this theory about, you know, the geography of the area might have affected it or there might be some other mysterious factor as to why, um, 
why the clubs here win so little given the amount of interest in the game and um but actually the the more i looked at it the more it was just down to mundane bad decision making you know um which is sort of is addressed in the in the introduction just you know even something like middlesbrough you know deciding that they had that there was someone better to appoint than bill shankley you know that's you know, that's just a bad decision. That isn't to do with anything. That's just a very bad decision. I mean, there is a big economic strand to the to book. Um, I yes, mean, yeah. you, talk to us a little bit about the kind of... The Newcastle, Sunderland, you know, these are kind of coal mining uh, areas. And, that you know, that kind of coal uh, culture. I mean, if you look around Europe, the Schalke in Germany, I think their stadium just, yeah. just kind of re- revealed this new players' tunnel, which is kind of all made of coal. Yeah. Anywhere where there's coal, there's football. Why uh, Why has that historically been the case? Well, the according, you know, I, I'm not a sociologist, you know, but the, the ones I spoke to, you know, one of them, Professor Byrne, he, he from Durham University, he made the point that... Um, that coal was shift work, and that football was a very is a very straightforward game to organise in a shift pattern. So historically, you know, in in the the late nineteenth um, century and early twentieth century, whenever shift patterns were evolving, you know, the the a game to set up a game of football was cheap, and you know, um, and it was quick. So you that, so that was part of the reason he thinks for the development of it, and then it became. You know, there became then this fascination, and that with it, and and that culture, that industrial working class culture, actually then provides the players, and it provides the support base, um, and and it continues. You know, it 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 just continues, and and I know that I know that there will be lots of people who think we knew all this, and and they're right, we did know all this, so that, that I've written about, um, but it was only when I was going back and. Reviewing the 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 mining culture, that it was just the sheer number and the sheer talent of football, the amount of football talent that came from a mining background that is just incredible, and and it it must there there's something to it, but trying to trying to sort of um, nail down something as intangible as culture is is quite a difficult thing, you know. And I'm not saying that I've done that or anything. I'm just sort of pointing out perhaps for a modern generation that um that this this industrial culture doesn't exist anymore and this might in part explain why the northeast doesn't produce the great footballers in the numbers and quality that it used to michael did the sunderland newcastle rivalry come out of that industrial period or was it a more is that actually a more recent phenomenon well, it depends on who you speak to. I mean, there there are people who say that it's historic and that it goes back centuries and that you know it predates football. Um, but then you go, you you speak to others who say that basically, until the mid sixties, nineteen sixties, um, it it was a sort of a rivalry um, as opposed to enmity. And um, but since then, just with the the rise of um, hooliganism and as as one um contributor called it um skinhead culture on the terraces um that that changed the nature of the rivalry um and i must admit i i, I sort of agree with that i mean whenever i've even looked at places like it, i would say possibly the most bitter small rivalry in british football is blackburn and burnley and when you look back to it 
you know, in the 1950s, men from each town used to go and watch, you know, go to Ewood Park one week and turf the other week. So, the, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this modern rivalry, um, some people try and justify it by giving a historic context. And I think there's an element of that in, in Sunderland, Newcastle. Um, but what, one thing that you do notice now is the, is the level of bitterness in it. And also that sort of the, the separation um, between um, the cities is, is quite, um, it's, it's heightened um, by the lack of industry, actually, because there isn't that shared background. There isn't shared mining. You know, there isn't shared shipbuilding. So it, it feels like it feels like it's, it's become more tense. Having said that, the, the reaction to the killing of um, uh, Liam Sweeney and John Alder in, in, the, in the Malaysian airplane from Wearside and elsewhere really struck a chord and it may have changed things. You know, we won't see until the 20th of December when the first derby um, happens, but it, that may have changed things. So it'll be interesting to see that. There's also there's a kind of a tension, I think Niall Quinn mentions this at a point in the book, between um, the the idea of the football club as a place, as a, as a kind of emblem of the community, and this yeah. rapacious business, which is trying to yeah. mine uh, cash out of the out of the same yeah. community. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it is. I mean, I just think that's one of the interesting things. I mean, in sort of broad terms, uh, I was sort of at, at the very beginning. It was you know it was sort of to try and write a modern history of the clubs in a sense, for want of a better phrase, and um, and part of that is to sort of document you know obviously the characters and what it's going on, but also I felt. The change in clubs, you know, and I felt that really strongly whenever Middlesbrough opened the food bank. You know, I thought that really does say something about um, not just Teesside, but the changing nature of football clubs. You know, they have these foundations now, and Sunderland's is huge, and um, it's you know it's a really important thing in, for the club and for the um, for Wearside. Um, but at the same time, you know, if results are poor. It has to, you know, there has to be that knock-on impact. And as Niall says, you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're still charging a lot of money to get into Sunderland from a to a community that is, you know, quite poor in relative terms. Um, and there is that tension, yeah, absolutely. And it's it, it is the same on T side. Uh, there are some, I mean, there's bits where you, where you, where you talk about uh, you go through some sort of figures just to give an example of how. Um, how big a, a football culture this was. And, okay, between 1960 and 1987, 15 out of 28 league titles are won by managers from the Northeast, people like Brian Clough, Don Revy, uh, Bob Paisley, and so, and so on. Uh, I mean, you're looking at the composition of the England teams in that period, and it's also dominated by players uh, from there. And all of this has completely changed. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's won trophy since, since 1990. The, I mean, I wonder how much it has to do with just the... You know, we we were talking about the sort of the, the coal mining and, and the fact that everybody used to be employed and there was a kind of a structure which maybe has been lost. But there's also just changes in the way that people um, generally behave in society. Okay, one of my favorite stories in the book has to do with Jackie Milburn's Christmas present in, I think, 1932. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can tell us what happened uh, What happened on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning there. Well, he, he, he gets up, he gets a new pair of football boots delivered you know, from Santa Claus in the night and um, and it's four in the morning and he also gets a torch 
Um, so he, he, he gets his torch, sees the football boots and immediately gets them on, steals out of the house and runs around because he, he sort of lived sometimes with his parents and sometimes with his, uh, his grandparents um, on sixth row in uh, Ashington. And there were 40 boys apparently on that street, sixth row, who all played. And so he was he was going around um, uh, at four in the morning to show off his boots. And he knew that a couple of other lads were getting boots, so they, they would all be you know, showing them off. But it, what he what amazed him when he got there was that there was a full-scale match going on at four in the morning, and they all had the torches out and their boots on. And it's just a it's just an image from from you know a bygone world. It's just absolutely incredible that that I mean the the the, the picture that he paints is just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, and a place in for all to football. It's amazing, um, but I mean, kids just aren't allowed to do that kind of thing anymore. Well, you see, yeah, I mean, and you, you know, again, you go back to something as mundane as a motor car. You know, you go back to the fact that you know, although there are various reasons why parents are reluctant to let their children play on streets anymore, the major factor is the motor car, and you go back to the fact that children aren't allowed to play on streets anymore because cars go up and down, and when you think about it, you know. Again, you know, it's a bigger sociological question, but it's a. You, know, you think about how cities and towns and our societies have surrendered to motor cars, so that you know you've got all this obesity, and children aren't allowed to play in the street, and you never see boys eat. Sometimes around here where I live, you see boys kicking a ball, but not very often. Not the way even it was, you know, thirty years ago, and um, and you know I see that in Belfast when I go home, and you you'll see it. You know, in Dublin as well, you just don't. It's it's there's a, but and yet now there seems to be you know organized. There's quite a lot of organized football, but it lacks that spontaneity, and um, and I think that sh- shows through in some of the style of football that's played. Um, John Barnwell was quite interesting um, about that. You know, about children playing, boys playing in the streets. What kind of football? What kind of player that made you, and how competitive that made you? Um, and then the change between you know, and being allowed to develop it. Is it I, I think, you know, there's a phrase he uses about we've lost the we've lost the ability to ve- to develop things over time, not just football, but things over time. It's a very we're very impatient, you know, um, and that's that struck me as being really interesting. There's a there's a real lack of patience, and obviously in football, like you know, you see it on a weekly basis. What's the relationship today between, say, Sunderland and Newcastle? Uh, I'm, I'm lumping them together, even though you've spent a lot of time explaining why they're very different in their own ways. But uh, to, to London, to sort of the, the, the I mean, I'm even reading today in the Telegraph that Mike Ashley is trying to sell Newcastle again. And this is one of the, looking at this, one of the most hilarious stories of the last few years in English football. This guy who comes up to Newcastle, nobody wants him, he he doesn't really want them, decides he wants to sell pretty quickly, but can't find a buyer, stays involved, is now trying to sell them again, uh, and seems to be a, a, an, an object of, of ridicule within the community there. Does that represent, and even the way Pardew is viewed, would that represent a d- deeper, am, am I trying to read too much into that dynamic? No, no, I mean, in, in that particular instance, I think Pardew is unpopular because um, of his, of his style of football, his willingness to, or his his unwillingness to challenge Mike Ashley. Those are the two factors in his unpopularity. It isn't to do with where he's from, actually, because if he was if he was really good and really successful, um, you know, he would be popular. You know, Kevin Keegan isn't from the northeast. 
um, Nal Quinn isn't from the North East, Rob Lee isn't from the North East, you know, they've been Malcolm McDonald isn't but you know, they, they you know their people have come out from outside and been really hugely popular. What you have noticed over the last ten years as as Britain has been Londonized and British culture has been Londonized, um, and you have this constant barrage of you know, well that's what it feels like anyway, in a place like this you you feel as if you're constantly there's a constant barrage about London. Um and that in a broad sense as opposed to in a football sense is is felt. Um and that's why you would have I, I, I would think that if they had a, a vote again on a on a regional assembly, the the, the voting pattern would be would be turned on its head. That's exactly, that's an interesting thing we, we wanted to get to, Michael. I mean, do you think, I mean, we, we can all see what's happening in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, the, the barrage that you're talking about of London, it's, it's something which crosses national boundaries. I think, yeah, I think yeah. you live in Dublin, you can still be, pick this up. Do you think, uh, do, you, do you foresee a northeast nationalism ever uh, taking root? People saying, this is ridiculous, let's just try and do our own thing here? Well, it, it, it might be, but there's a lack of, again, you see, Teesside is, um, you know, 30 to 40 miles from, you know, the, the top of Tyneside. So you've got, you've, that's actually quite a, a, quite a distance in a sense. So there's a, there is some, there isn't that coherent um, vision. And I know Scotland's obviously a much bigger place, but Scotland has a, you know, a much more established unified culture. Um, but in, in one, in, in a sense that, that they are going. They are going through the same thing, just at a different. You know, Scotland's just got there first, really. You know, I think. Um, I think. You know, the most relevant politician in in Britain is still Margaret Thatcher. You know, it's still she's still you know the person who's changed things, and she affected the North East massively. She affected Scotland massively, and what what the people in London, the politicians of London, woke up to on on Monday morning, was the realization that. You know, um, Scottish people and people in the north of England generally have moved away hugely emotionally from that kind of thinking. They don't believe in that, you know, and it makes me laugh like about the the banks threatening to leave Scotland, you know, like as if they have some, you know, <laughs> as if they have some moral authority or financial authority. You know, it's just a joke. All right, well, listen, the book is called Up There, The Northeast Football Boom and Bust. Michael Walker, great to talk to you about that today. Thanks, Emil. Thanks very much. I knew the place. Clough, as he calls me Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why there's not? Lo- no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, I've got. We're doing, we're doing lots for much. And then but that, well, that I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that may, that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Hold on a second. I would just like to go back to something I said in the course of that chat. Mm-hmm. Shark have a tunnel made of coal. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know if it's coal, if it's actual coal or just coal effect. Because the thing about actual coal, beautiful as it is, 
Uh, it's got that sort of dark luster, you know. Um, it is also a little bit dirty. I mean, if you were to lean against the wall of the tunnel, you know, I mean, players are coming out of the tunnel looking like miners uh, wearing football gear. That's really reconnecting with the past, though. We talked to Michael Parkinson about this, Ken, not so long ago, about hopping on the bus in, Barnley and, and, and Barnsley and then meeting one of the miners and... Off they went together to the game. As yeah. the minor went to play the match, I should say. Oh, it's great. I mean, so we're going back to that, that age in Schalke. Yeah, well, although, I mean, in a, it's also the club commercialising its past. It com- commercial. I mean, Schalke used to be the coal, a coal miners club. And actually, they okay, they do still have a mining community. It's not like in England where they literally, there's almost, there's no, there's no mining left. I mean, they, they, it was a conscious decision by the government. And Michael was talking about it there. Margaret Thatcher to destroy the organised labour in England, of which the most powerful sector was the coal miners. And so to destroy that, they more or less abandoned it. I mean, there's still plenty of coal there, mm. and they still burn plenty of coal, but they import it. You know, it's like a country which is full of coal, which gets all this coal from elsewhere. In Germany, they still actually do have it. What Schalke are doing, though, I mean, you see this tunnel. I guess it's a coal effect. It's like, it looks like coal. It's just like a, a shaft of coal. In fact, totally unlike a mine. Mm. The, op- the, the exact opposite of what a mine shaft would be like, where you would have coal at the front blocking the way onto the pitch, and then <laughs> the sides would just be useless rock, which, mm. you, know, the, you know, in fact, this is like the whole tunnel is made of coal, if you see what I mean. It's yeah. like a, uh, but it's not coal. It's, it's like some kind of black plastic. And then it's got a big Gazprom logo mm. uh, just before you go out onto the pitch, just uh, over there. The team should be transported from the dressing room to the pitch in one of those huge big sort of dumpers you know like it, that's used throughout uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom yeah d- and the little wagon yeah yeah those little wagons yeah they all of each player should have an individual one of those and just get wheeled out out of the centre of the field now that is called reconnecting with your mining community there are some amazing things in that actually you know just in terms of this is, I think this is one story about Jack Charlton going you know, five miles underground to see to see like a, in Michael a, Walker's book. A, yeah, a mine shaft going that far, or like at six miles out underneath the North Sea. You know, there's guys working away down there. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, it really. Is. I remember interviewing um, Bobby Robson many years ago uh, about that, about growing up in that sort of community, and it was actually remarkable to think I'm talking it was just such another world that you could barely comprehend this is a guy who who grew up in it and managed to make his way in football to avoid a, a life spent uh, down there in the in the pits but we're going to move on Jonathan Wilson joins us to talk about the debut of Danny Welbeck against Manchester City this lunchtime for Arsenal Jonathan is this a guy with a bit of a dual identity here we've talked a bit about what some of the former Man United guys are saying about him and how ridiculous uh, some of them feel it is that he's been allowed to leave the club but then others say He's essentially not a guy who scores many goals and despite some attributes, hasn't really lived up to his billing so far. Would I be right in saying, does he divide opinion in that way? I think he does and I think it's understandable that he does. I mean, you look at him some games and he's clearly very, very quick. His movement is good. He seems intelligent. He seems a very grounded, sensible kid who, who... I see that's the problem. I say kid, he's 23. So he really, he, he, he isn't a kid anymore. He should be doing things. And I guess that's maybe why this move is has come about at sort of the right time for him that that things weren't quite working out at United. I mean, I think he played 50 or started 52 league games for United, which by the age of 23, you know, isn't great. I mean, I think Daniel Sturridge had started 48 uh, Premier League games uh, by the age of 23. Uh, now, Welbeck has those 52 and I think he played 
20 odd for Sunderland as well but it's still not a huge number for a 23 year old it's time for him to to find his right position and to, to start playing regularly and if going to Arsenal gives him a chance to do that then you can understand why it's happened the case against him is, is that he hasn't progressed and, and also this, this big doubt about his finishing are you surprised to hear guys like Gary Neville, Brian Robson, um, all coming out and saying this is terrible? Why are we Why are we doing this? This is a, this is a bad decision. And I'm not surprised. No, I, I sort of I can understand why former United players, I guess particularly somebody like Gary Neville, who's clearly absolutely steeped in the in the club and, and came through the youth ranks. I can understand why he sees the importance of maintaining that local identity, of keeping that, um, that you know, a great run going back to the 30s, of always having a, a player who's coming through the youth system in the team. I, I, I think that is important, and I can, I can understand why there's a disappointment that somebody who, who you know, has as much potential as Welbeck is going. At the same time, I think if you're United and you're offered Falcao for... Yeah, whatever, eight, nine million for the year. Okay, the wages are huge. But if you calculate that things like shirt sales, the increased exposure that gives you, that that almost sort of balances that out. Um, then if, if you know, if there's a commercial imperative behind the Falcao deal, if you've got Van Persie, you've got Rooney, you've got Falcao, apparently Van Hal really likes to look at James Wilson, perhaps more than Welbeck even, or whether that's just you know factoring in that he, he's he's significantly younger. Then Welbeck's a, a fifth choice. Now, if he's fifth choice, how many games is he going to start? Like 10, 15? So if you have 16 million quid for somebody who's going to start 10 or 15 games in the season, that probably represents good business. And, and equally, Welbeck hasn't got the same sort of profile that, that a Rooney or a Van Persie or, or a Falcao has in terms of the, you know, the, the commercial side of things. Mm. Well, maybe a couple more nights like he had in Basel the other, um, the other day will start to change that, I imagine, pretty, pretty quickly. But this is sort of. Tell us something about the way that um, fan culture has developed in the, in the last little while. I mean, these kind of partisans for and against Welbeck. Um, I wouldn't say all flip-flopping their, their positions immediately when he moves from Manchester United to Arsenal. But it seems to be, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if, if Welbeck necessarily would have had so many people um, writing blogs about his, his uh, potential greatness if he hadn't been a Manchester United reserve as opposed to, you know, some other uh, club's reserve? Well, I guess the point is that it is Manchester United and that's why he's a reserve. I mean, I, you know, two or three other clubs where you can be a reserve and still be a, a superb player. If he'd stayed at Sunderland after his year on loan there, then, well, he wouldn't still be at Sunderland. He'd move somewhere for a lot of money because that year at Sunderland he, he, was, he was superb given he was, what, I think 18 or 19 at the time. The game when, when Sunderland won 3-0 at Stamford Bridge, the, the link-up between he and Asamoah Jan was, was sensational. So now the, the issue with his finishing, I think, is a, is a little odd in that there's uh, Opta produced some stats uh, the day he signed showing that over the last two years his chance conversion rate is 25%, which is exactly the same as that of Daniel Sturridge. So maybe we have a slightly flawed idea of that, partly because he scores fewer goals because he's been playing wide left, and partly maybe... Because he know, missed a chance against Bayern Munich. Well, exactly, yeah. The, the chances he's missed, or he did miss chances in a very high-profile game, and, and very important chances. Now, again, there's, there's two ways of looking at that. Is he just unfortunate that he's done that in a game when everybody's watching, everybody's making judgments, or does he buckle when the pressure's really on? And, yeah, we just don't know the answer to that. Just on the Manchester United side of things here, Jonathan, is there an irony in that they've got a manager in now who 
made his name really whose greatest achievement probably is still bringing that youthful Ajax team to the Champions League trophy in 95 and um, they've got in, him in now he's supposed to give these sort of young players belief and, and mould them into what he wants them to be and then Manchester United have categorically given up on a youth system and have gone to this Galactico style of spending I'm not sure that's that's quite fair on Van Gaal because he will look at Welbeck and he'll see a 23-year-old. He won't necessarily see a player who's come through the youth system. And, and so if, if it is the case that it came down almost to a choice between Welbeck and, and, and Wilson, then by going for Wilson, he has actually stayed true to that. Yeah, I want young players I can mould. It may be that 23, Welbeck is is less malleable than, than he would have been four or five years ago. So, I mean, Van Gaal, I think, has, has come to quite a difficult situation of a, of a squad that he perhaps didn't realise just how much remoulding it needed. Uh, and, and I guess this commercial imperative has been, been placed on him, um, partly by the owners, partly just by the, the necessity of financial fair play. I think there, there was a need for United to clear out, I was going to say Deadwood, but that, that's, that's not fair, to, to clear out members of the squad who, who might not necessarily be first choice. Uh, so, you know, there has been a huge clear out with, Ferdinand and Vidic and Ever and, and Nani, Tom Cleverley going out on loan. They've, they've got to clear the wage bill a bit. So if he was told, look, you can only have four forwards, you've got to pick one to go, but we've got to have Falcao for these commercial reasons. And also Falcao is a proven player who you, know, you, you can be pretty certain if he stays fit will get you 20 goals this season. Then then I guess Welbeck probably is the one he's got to, got to sacrifice. Yeah, just I'm going to rip up the rule book here, Jonathan, and ask you a two-part question. Uh, one of them is, uh, do you see Manchester United's uh, summer just gone as the the advent of a, as Owen mentioned, a Galactico style, you know, a Zidane, Pavons, or, um, you know, aping Real Madrid, effectively, that, that that's what Man United are now going to do. I mean, they're rich enough to do it, that that's what they're going to do. And part B... Of this long question. Of this long question is... If that is the way they're going to go, um, is this an attractive way to run the club from the point of view of the Glazers, who are a lot more profit-driven than than the people who are in charge at Real Madrid? Um, I think the answer to A is, if that is what they're thinking of, then Van Gaal is the wrong manager. Uh, I think he's somebody who, I mean, partly his, his ego makes him think that a player he's coached will be better than a player he hasn't coached. So I think he is still attracted by the idea of bringing through young players. Uh, I think it's, it's difficult to judge what a long-term policy is because you know, their, their transfer policy has been so odd for almost a decade that you almost feel that there's a year or two of necessary correction of just of paying massively over the odds um, to, to just to get the squad back up to the sort of level where it can compete, which then allows you to, to be in the Champions League regularly and get that income and, and get that exposure and, and everything that's absolutely essential to United continuing to run as, uh, you know, as they believe they should run. Um, so in that sense, Galacticos have become, have become necessary. And I guess there's also there's, there's a strange sort of exchange rate goes on in football that the value of a pound at Old Trafford is not the same now, it's less now than the value of a pound at Old Trafford was three years ago. That everybody can see that they're desperate to buy players, they're desperate to offload players, that there's huge changes going on. And that means they don't get as much for their, their money as they used to because in a you know, from a negotiating position, they're, they're, they're weak. So uh, there's that whole issue. I actually, I, the, 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 the idea of, of Zidane's and Perron's, I, I don't think in itself is that bad an idea. I think if you're running a club as a... Um, 
yeah, commercially, uh, then I can see why you might need to do that. I think Real Madrid just did it very badly. That I mean, particularly the Macaulay sale just seemed crazy to me. That as, as so many other people, that, that it just ruined the structure of that side, um, and they. You know, they they overzidanda if you like, but I think the notion that you you bring in, you bring in big glamour players who have a commercial value in and of themselves, almost irrespective of what they do on the pitch, and you supplement that with players from your youth team who you hope will develop sufficiently. I, I, I think that's not necessarily as flawed as Real Madrid made it look. Um, that ties into part B. What's the second part? Of the yeah, part, part B was second the Glazers. Yeah, I mean, okay, Real Madrid have been have been doing this for a long time, or, or buying you know the most expensive players in the world for a long time. But Real Madrid don't care how much money they lose. Really, they they figure they'll they'll find some way around it. Whereas the current ownership at Manchester United is is quite tightly focused on uh, generating profit, uh, paying down debt. Um, you know, appreciating the capital value of the club, and if they're spending so much money on players, suddenly, um, you know, the way it's it's a very different way from the highly profitable way they've been running the club for the, for the last while, and you wonder how much kind of stomach the Glazer family would have for for that type of ownership. Yeah, I mean, I think it, obviously a, a change is a risk. I, but I also wonder, and I, I you know, I'm I'm not an economist. I don't don't really understand this, but I wonder if there's an argument that. Big glamorous players pay for themselves purely for what they bring in commercial terms, and that there's almost financially you're almost better off with the team who's regularly in the Champions League, who's regularly getting to the you know, quarterfinals of Champions League, don't actually have to win it, but has four or five big glamorous players that that actually financially brings you more more revenue than being a team. I mean, the IX model, I guess, now can't work, but being a team who. Uh, creates a, a great unit with with young players you develop, and they do brilliantly, and they they win things, and then they age, and then you have the cycle goes again, and you have three or four years of fallow. Uh, whether that that's the, you know, the, the cyclical nature that, that the team building necessarily brings, which I guess is what Barcelona are going through now, uh, which is perhaps why they they've started buying big stars. Uh, whether that actually ultimately becomes less profitable than, than splashing huge amounts of cash, but generating huge amounts of cash just by the, the glamour of those players. Yeah. And almost you know, spending the money in itself becomes glamorous. Just, I, I, you know, I think I, I wrote something on this when, when Real Madrid signed Gareth Bale, that mm. they wanted to break the world transfer record that year just because they were saying, look at us, we're breaking the world transfer record. If that cost them £10 million more than it should have done, or £20 million more than it should have done, that actually didn't matter because... That ten million or twenty million pounds extra, it was covered by the fact they'd broken the record again. That just being able to say we've broken the record brings commercial returns. Yeah, right. it gets 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 expensive when it's two clubs who are, who are trying to do it. I suppose. Yeah, listen, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Cheers, thanks. And that's the problem with two part questions, Ken. The interviewee almost always forgets forgets the second part, part after focusing so much. That's why you. That's why it's I, a rule, Ken. That's why the rules are in place. One part. I, I would have said that more often than not, the second question they answer gets the second answered part first. because it's the more recent one, and then they forget. To what f- was the first? Either, part? either way, you're not remembering both questions. I'm interested if Van Hal apparently seems to have been somewhat shocked by what has greeted him. Van Hal must have thought David Moyes was a very, very bad manager. Why? Because he's. If it is correct that. 
Van Hal has gone in and been stunned by how poor the playing squad is that he has to work with. Oh, right. He must so have really just felt... Just, just guy Moyes, what's he doing? He must have looked at it black and white said, look, they were league champions and they had this guy in yeah. and now we're going to be league champions again. Well, I suppose, who, who would he have simple. been talking to? Who would Van Hal's primary source about goings on in the Manchester United dressing room have been oh, before he yeah. took over? Or, v, or VP, he wouldn't mm. have been speaking too highly of... Well, look, I don't know what, what Roman Van Mercy said to David Moyes. All I know is that whenever he talks about David Moyes in public, he said, a wonderful man. We all wanted him to succeed. Uh, but he would have been the, he would have been the person uh, that Van Hal would have been hearing from. Um, I mean, I, I thought that was interesting, the point that Jonathan was getting onto at the end there. That whole idea of the world transfer record being its own engine of, of wealth. Mm. Like, the more you spend, the more you get. Yeah. I mean, that's what Florentino Perez has been trying to say for a long time now. And the figures would appear to bear him out in that Real Madrid consistently are making profits. Although they, they, they are hugely in debt at the same time. And they, they do have special conditions in that country, which Manchester United can't have. Um, number one, they're the only club that's trying to do this. I try and break its own transfer record every you know, just to underline the fact that they're the biggest club in the world. Yeah, like Sergei Bubka when he used to consistently break his own pole vault record. Yeah, every time they do it, it creates more... No, it, uh, exactly like that, really. Yeah. But every time they do it, it creates more interest. I mean, the, the most expensive players are the cheapest, says uh, Frontino Perez. This is not, you know, it's, it's a kind of a nice-sounding phrase, but it's not necessarily true. I, I think the important thing, though, to think about with with Manchester United is that they've recently signed all these commercial deals like 750 million with Adidas and it's what 80 million dollars a season with General Motors mm-hmm. C- crazy insane money you know and they've earned those deals I mean if earned is the word to use here and I'm, I'm not sure if it's, if it's the appropriate word but those deals have come to them off the back of their previous policy off the way that they have always been doing things or were doing things under Alex Ferguson. They actually didn't need to be signing Ronaldo and Bale and, and so on. They didn't need to, to do that in order to earn that kind of, uh, those kind of commercial revenues. I think it's a bit of a dangerous game for them to get into competing with Real Madrid in the spending, in the throwing money away. You know, you've got two clubs throwing money away. Like, you know, it doesn't, maybe you can only have one club doing that. And, and getting the benefits that accrue, and if two clubs are competing for that, they might just end up costing each costing themselves a lot of, a lot of money. That's it from us for this show. If you have any interest at all in concussion in sport, make sure to listen to our other program out there today. Carol Mannion, the St. Bridget's uh, footballer in Roscommon, he spoke to us about the issues he's had himself with a couple of concussions and just some really smart ideas in general about that issue. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Our new website is there for you if you haven't checked it out. Do check out secondcaptains.com. You can also get on to irishtimes.com forward slash podcast to listen to some of the other Irish Times podcasts, as the name would suggest. Murph, thank you. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.